I've spent a lot of my time looking for Wang Shishan's money. And, uh, you know, whereas the Wen family and the Xi family and Jia Qinglin's family really didn't hide it very well, uh, nor did He Guochang's family, for that matter. That's four Politburo Standing Committee members right there who didn't hide their family wealth. Uh, Wang Shishan is a, either he doesn't have any or it's really well hidden. Red Roulette, Desmond Shum's memoir of a fast life, deep in the bowels of Chinese politics, is the bombshell China book of 2021. It tells the story of his rise from an impoverished childhood in Cultural Revolution-era Shanghai to his marriage with a social climbing wife with ties to the premier of China, the billions he made, and his ultimate downfall as Xi's anti-corruption push caught up with him. To discuss, I have two fantastic journalists, Lizzie, the host of a Chinese media language show based out of New York called Wall Street TV, who wrote a fantastic review of the book, and Mike Forsyth, a New York Times reporter known for his detailed investigations of where money flows in the Chinese system. For an ad-free feed and my eternal gratitude, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash Chinatalk. Mike and Lizzie, unfortunately, we cannot record this show in a baijiu soaked upscale Beijing Cantonese restaurant or a dingy, smoke-filled, fluorescent-lit uh, Shunyi municipal office building. Um, we have to do this online, but I think we'll be able to make the most of it. Uh, welcome to China Talk. So um, first off, I would like to talk a little bit about the nature of friendship, um, which is an odd, which is a somewhat odd place to start, but I think is a, a really powerful theme which runs through this book. Um, Desmond starts out talking about, you know, how he was super buddy-buddy um, and, like, holding hands all the time with his school chums in Shanghai. And over the course of his life, he had to, like, process different types of friendships. And this guy seemed like he was kind of ser always searching for someone to relate with on an equal level. Back in, in Hong Kong, there was a totally different type of personal dynamic. When he came to the States, he sort of felt like everyone was his fake friend. And then, you know, once he rises up into this world of elite money and power in, in, in Beijing, he ultimately becomes very disillusioned, not only with the relationships he's cultivated, but also his relationship with his wife. Um, there was a sort of bad China take on Twitter the other day where someone um, was saying that, like, Chinese people don't have friends, which is absurd. Um, but I'm curious, sort of, your guys' thoughts on what, if anything, this book taught you about the nature of um, relationships in the kind of highest level of money and power in Beijing. So I guess the kind of relation that's really prominent uh, in this book is uh, what we call governance business relations, uh, or in Xi Jinping's words, guanxi, and it's supposed to be both clean and close, qin and qing. Those are the two key words Xi Jinping laid out for the ideal kind of government business relation. But from Desmond Shang's account, we know that's actually not the case. You know, Shan talked in the in this book, realistic tycoons had those humiliating experience of standing outside of bureaucrats' office for hours in order to get approvals for their projects and in order to to get a green light for uh, Mr. Shun's airport logistic hub with his wife. Uh, he had to dine with officials every day for hours and, you know, down expensive liquor for every meal. I mean, that kind of relationship seems to be friendship, but is that really friendship? We do know that Mr. Shun's employees had to run errands for their government connections, look after the needs of their families and kids, 
And I think one of the most remarkable details in the book is when an, an employee of Mr. Shum apparently went to so many sauna trips that his skin started to, to peel off. So I think, you know, it's important to, to see the, you know, the intimate detail, the kind of intimate relationships between the government officials and businessmen. They all seem to be close friends with that, with each other, but sort of beneath that, there's a deep-rooted tier of hierarchy. And I think that's the background and the tone in the book that's not to be missed. I think Desmond Shum kind of struck me as a little bit of a lost person. And that's not surprising, given that he grew up as a small boy in China, in Shanghai, and then he moved to Hong Kong, and then he was a student in the United States. Um, and then he went back to Hong Kong and mainland China. So he was he was kind of an expat in, in a lot of ways and, and maybe never really settled down in a place. I can relate to that. And the idea of him when he was young in Shanghai holding hands with his male friends, uh, you know, for, for a Westerner like me, when I first came to China in 1998 and saw that, surprised me. But I quickly realized that's just the nature of male-male Chinese friendships. And uh, we know people who, you know, like Lizzie are from China, you know, you, you and me, Jordan, who've lived there a long time, that Chinese friendships can be very deep. They can be very complicated as well, um, but they're real. And, you know, unfortunately for, for Desmond Shum, he moved to Hong Kong into a very different environment, um, you know, in, in a very formative, tender time of his life. And just as he was starting to really get a hang of that and thrive, he moved to the United States. Uh, and and we know for a Chinese student or a Hong Kong student, going to the United States can be a very lonely thing, especially if you don't have a lot of other people from, you know, China or from Hong Kong or wherever with you, it, it can be very lonely. So I, I thought it did, it did strike me that, you know, he has been searching for friendships. And then, of course, going into the system in China, uh, you know, going into this area of high finance in the 1990s, meeting his wife, then, you know, it was a transactional thing. You know, the transactional nature of friendships was was so obvious. Him spending time uh, with these very powerful people like uh, the daughter and the son-in-law of Jia Qinglin, the number four guy in the Communist Party at the time, flying on airplanes with him, playing card games with him, but then being able to just, you know, eviscerate him in a book. I think says a lot about, you know, so-called friendships, you know, because he was hanging out with this guy in Beijing, hanging out in Beihai Park, uh, looking for a place to set up a wine bar. And then he just turns around in this book and, and eviscerates hey, him. Mike, so, it, Mike, it's not a wine bar. OK, this is the most exclusive wine club establishment on the planet. OK, that never happened. Did that it never happened. Yeah, <laughs> it never happened because they saw the minister of state security walking in Beihai Park. Yeah. yeah. My take is that he's he's still searching for love, maybe in all the wrong places. Staying on the rise, Mike, you uh, you raised this this business trip to Italy, which he took with a number of, of bigwigs. And my sense is that just like you would think being a billionaire would be more fun. Um, and I don't know if this is if this is like a function of Desmond as lost soul 
or just like the soul sucking nature of being a billionaire in China when you are like involved in real estate deals and like have to be friends with all these folks. I mean, you know, it wasn't just the um, the subordinate who like had to go to, to too many uh, sauna nights. Um, it was also him like having to hang out with these individuals who he clearly thought were his intellectual and moral inferiors. And going to Italy and not being able to like eat croissants because the uh, uh, Wen Jiabao's wife like just preferred to eat congee and and um, uh, instant noodles. It just it just seemed like a really bleak existence, which at times he was into, but at other times he kind of saw through. According to one of my well-connected friends, eating congee and instant noodles on foreign trips is actually pretty common among Chinese officials. We sort of saw that on record during the Alaska summit when uh, Yang Jiechi and Wang Yi were caught on camera talking about their lunch. And, you know, in answering Wang Yi's question, she apparently answered that he had instant noodles in his hotel rooms for lunch. Yeah. So you'd be surprised how exclusive um, the, the Chinese appetite is to some of the, you know, some of the, 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 the stuff. Croissant, that's not, 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 that's not for breakfast. It's just congee and pickled vegetables. Yeah. For, for people like Auntie Chen and some other officials. But it, it speaks to a sort of larger theme, I think, which is that Desmond sort of saw Desmond in a whole class of, of folks of his sort of ilk who made it rich in coming from China, getting Western education and going back, saw themselves as sort of evangelists and not necessarily just for like wines beside like Chateau Lafitte, um, but also for a for a mindset of being open to reform and, you know, the importance of, of sort of market, uh, you know, market style reform and, and bringing democracy. And, you know, he was the part of the Beijing CPPCC, I believe, you know, saw that as a real venue and signed that the party was opening, uh, opening up and interested in hearing reforms. There was also a um, a beat in here in there where he, you know, as someone who had grown up in in, in Hong Kong wrote a memo which he claimed was read at the highest level saying that Beijing's theory of the case of Hong Kong was broken and actually more not less democracy was what the what the city need in order to be governed um, successfully. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we've seen over the past for the past few years in particular is um, these sorts of entrepreneurs, not just the foreign ones, but also, you know, more successful uh, Chinese ones as well, realizing and having to internalize that, in fact, they are not, um, you know, actors, they are being acted upon in this sort of CCP system. And, you know, getting back to the the kanji, I think it is very common for Chinese people to eat that overseas. I think Evan Osnos wrote a, an article in The New Yorker a few years ago about that when he took a tour group in Europe, a Chinese tour group, and that's, they all wanted to eat Chinese food. And And hey, you know, I mean, my goodness, there's so many Americans who go overseas, you know, where they go and they, they want to go to find McDonald's, you know, so it's not it's, there's a lot of commonalities between Americans overseas and Chinese overseas, I think. And, you know, but it gets to the point that, you know what, Desmond Trump said this in his book, too. he didn't feel Chinese. You know, he had spent his formative years in Hong Kong. He didn't feel like he was, you know, teaching. He really didn't feel like he was part of the system. And and they didn't treat him as part of the system. And that might explain his preference for croissants over kanji as well. You know, I mean, uh, when Jiabao's wife, Zhang Beili, she was um, she was Chinese through and through. And Desmond Shum had grown up outside of uh, outside of China proper. Um, and in fact, the British, I think, you know, ruled Hong Kong for most of the time he lived there anyway. So that might also explain. And, and it, I think these trips um, to Europe 
the trip to Paris and Milan with, uh, you know, Jia Qinglin's uh, son-in-law and daughter, and also then the trip with Zhang Beili. I don't think that was fun. I think that was work. Yeah. And it's not surprising to me that he wasn't enjoying himself because that was work. And even though he and his wife had a lot of money, they weren't at the same level. They were still supplicants in many ways to these elite masters of theirs, you know, the the family of the number three person in the Communist Party and the family of the number four person in the Communist Party. One more subtle topic of the book is how inferior um, Shum and his wife uh, Duan actually feel, not just because, you know, they are sort of baisho um, tall white gloves for for um, Wen's family. It's also because Wen's family doesn't have enough of red bloodline uh, aristocracy within the system. I think the book uh, talked about how uh, they were like the foot soldiers for the Wen family slugging it out in the trenches, but they can never rely on Wen Jiabao's direct support, not even from Zhang Beili herself. The book sort of contrasts the Wen family with, say, the Deng family, which is a more, you know, a red aristocrat family in the more evangelical sense. And the Deng family got the sweetest of all deals, those exclusive mineral water deals with the Ministry of Railways. And Desmond Sheng and Whitney Duan, although they are very close to the Wen family and apparently had trust from Zhang Lady herself, they had to actually do more work to secure their deals. And those deals are not set in stone um, ex ante. So they have to you know, actually do their investigations and do their due, due diligence. So I think that kind of hierarchy and that, that kind of sense of you know, inferiority was also quite apparent in the book. Yeah, it was it was interesting because it was inferiority, but also superiority. Right. I mean, he was he was trashing all these red princes saying, oh, you know, they never work hard. They can't make their way around a spreadsheet. They just sort of like sell access and and, and drink Mao Tai. Um, but here I am with this fancy P.E. background, understanding, doing the research and the marketplace. And like, here I am tr- just trying to do real business, um, but like in a system which is makes that very difficult. Um, while at the same time, I mean, you know, playing the game as hard as he possibly could. I, I think that's a that's a good uh, description. They were both superior and inferior at the same time. So Desmond and, and his wife had the occasion to meet uh, to, to interact with a handful of pretty prominent folks, she himself included. I'm curious uh, for your reflections on as as well as a seemingly deep relationship with Wang Qishan. I'm curious how um, his characterizations of some of the most uh, senior folks he was able to interact with over the course of his uh, of his time in Beijing line up with your uh, perceptions of uh, of these folks. So in that book, um, Shan recalled through the, the lens of uh, Whitney Duan that Wang Qishan reviewed in private conversations with Whitney Duan that China's system was like a giant game of musical chairs, in Chinese, that those SOEs couldn't survive in the long term. So Wang Qishan's suggestion to Wen Yiduan was, please get the bullets ready. So when it was time to so, so-called pull the trigger, Wen Yiduan, you can have your ammunition ready. So I think that was quite kind of a shocking admission from someone um, with a position as high as Wang Qishan. It, it also begs the question, you know, where are Wang Qishan's bullets? Um, where is his, like, capital sitting waiting for that moment? That's that's actually very true. And I think the the disgraced boss of HNA, Chen Feng, was widely believed to be close to Wang Qishan. And, you know, Chen Feng is currently, um, you know, 
sort of under investigation. So maybe that will tell, tell us more about Wang Tishan's business connection. But currently, I think I don't think we have that much verifiable information on Wang Tishan's business dealings per se. But another really shocking revelation in the book was Wang Tishan was actually a fan of a conspiracy Conspiracy-related book, Huo uh, Bi Zhenzheng. So I don't, I don't actually know that the the correct English translation of that book. I don't even know if if the book has English translation. But it's roughly currency war, and you would think that for someone like Wang Qishan, so high up in the in the financial bureaucracy, he wouldn't believe something like currency war or war. But apparently, uh, Wang Qishan was a fan of the book. Uh, uh, Lizzie, two sentences on what? like what's so crazy about this book? Okay, so. This book has this, gosh, I can't really, I can't really put it into proper sentences, but this huge conspiracy that uh, basically United States and a bunch of Jewish financiers were behind some of the most disgraceful acts in the global financial system. And the financial system was rigged to benefit those people. And the book sort of had this elaborate tales of all how those different actors and players have been planting their sources and planting different kinds of schemes in the financial system in order to to profit themselves. That's sort of the, the grand theme of the book. Apparently, it was pretty popular in China, had uh, multiple different versions, and the author of the book, Song Hongbin, is actually uh, a popular talk show host in China nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it's it's both surprising and not surprising. And um, we do know that conspiracy theories seem to run rife in Zhongnanhai. And the White House, let's be clear. I mean, and White House, too. Yeah, let's see, you know, especially after the last four years, you know, it's we've got to be a bit humble in the United States these days. Um, and uh, but there are a lot of conspiracy theories. He mentioned one, I think, in the book, you know, there's always whenever the New York Times or somebody puts out a story about the wealth of the leaders, whether it be Xi Jinping's family wealth, Wen Jiabao's family wealth. There's always the story going around that some faction gave, you know, reporter, <laughs> either me or David Barboza or somebody, a sheaf of documents, like as if we can't figure this stuff out for ourselves. And, you know, thank goodness, you know, for Chinese corporate transparency, a lot of times you can actually, you know, pull out these documents and, and figure it out. But there is these conspiracy theories in Zhongnanhai. I have been the target of them. Um, I have had people, uh, U.S. citizens who are um, from China uh, and who might live on Central Park South, uh, perhaps, you know, pe- my boss's calls and saying this reporter, Mike Forsyth, is very bad. He got a sheaf of documents from an enemy of Xi Jinping and now he's publishing them. You must stop this right away. <laughs> and so this stuff stuff does go on in Zhongnanhai. So, you know, you can see in that hot house how Wang Qishan might fall for that. On the other hand, my God, Wang Qishan was president of China Construction Bank. You know, he was the financial guru. He's the guy who's Tim Geithner's buddy. Tim Geithner calls him uncle. He's very close with Hank Paulson. It's because he wanted to he wanted to get in with the, with the Jewish conspiracy. He knew which way the wind was blowing. <laughs> if he really thought there was a conspiracy theory, he could have just given Hank Paulson a call and asked him. It is a, it is pretty crazy. And and, you, you know, I've spent a lot of my time looking for money. And, uh, you know, whereas the Wen family and the Xi family and Jia Qinglin's family really didn't hide it very well, uh, nor did He Guochang's family, for that matter. That's four Politburo Standing Committee members right there who didn't hide their family wealth. Uh, Wang Qishan is a different, you know, you know, either he doesn't have any or it's really well hidden. 
Uh, so it did beg the question. It was very interesting to see Wang Qishan's interest in, and I was a little confused by that, whether he wanted to be close to Whitney Duan so he could know more about Wen Jiabao. I, I, you know, that seemed to be the take, which was confusing a bit to me, but it, but it was an interesting relationship. And then the interaction with Xi Jinping and Peng Li was also very interesting. And the disdain that, that Shum seemed to, to hold towards Xi Jinping, I mean, he certainly does, you know, you certainly hear, you know, the stories that he's not the sharpest tack in the box. That's certainly uh, something that's out there. I certainly don't have any personal, you know, or real knowledge to affirm that or anything. So uh, I took it with a grain of salt. Maybe Xi Jinping was being quiet because he was being smart. And he knew that this Desmond guy might have a book up his sleeve one day. Exactly. Exactly. So 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 it could speak well for Xi Jinping's, you know, wisdom that he kept his mouth shut around this guy. There's another uh, member of the standing committee, Han Zheng. Mm-hmm. I think the book mentioned that when, um, you know, one of the prominent Shanghai think, uh, faction, Jiang Zemin loyalist Chen Yangyu, was purged from his Shanghai party chief post, Han Zheng, which is another Shanghai bureaucrat, his family members were, were also found to have stashed uh, something like $20 million in an Australian account. But uh, apparently, Chen was prosecuted and Han, Han Zheng was forgiven and eventually promoted to the standing committee. So I wonder, Mike, if you have more information on the alleged uh, Han Zheng secret account in Australia. I don't. You know, I have not gone on a Han Zheng bender. And so I, I don't have any anything on on him and, you know, my only guess would be that Han Zheng was more, he was better politically allied, you know, than Chen Liangyu was, you know, and, uh, you know, Chen Liangyu got on the wrong side of um, some party factions at, at the wrong time. And he's still in jail. I think he got an 18 year sentence. So he should be out with time served, I think, in 2024, maybe if he if he lives um, somewhere around then. So maybe he'll come out with a tell all book as well. <laughs> Although I don't think so. So, Mike, when is your like Coursera coming out on how to do what you do? Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm still learning. I, you know, every time I do these things, I learn new things. Um, and, and I realize every time I do it that I was like, oh, my God, I wish I had been doing it this way the whole time. And um, so um, I don't know what kind of audience it would have either, Jordan. I don't know how many people really... Uh, really are interested in this. And, and I have to say, I, um, I can promise you, Mike, that in this audience of China Talk listeners, there are hundreds of folks who would love to be doing what you do instead of writing whatever grad school paper they're writing. I'm the well, moment. I'm very fortunate that the Times lets me do it. And, you know, uh, and sometimes I pinch myself. I, I've been doing a lot of things other than this, but it, but it is my true love in is, you know, in work to, to be just in my, immersed in documents and looking looking for treasure. I'm very lucky because in a way, because of the Chinese system, if Chinese reporters were allowed to do what I do, then I would be nowhere. Um, And you see that when they are allowed to do things. And the example that is clear as a bell is when Zhou Yongkang was in trouble. And so, you know, the number nine guy on that old Politburo, who was the security chief, um, there was a green light that went off in late 2000. 13, early 2014, that it was okay to write about Zhou Yongkang. And boy, did we see some excellent Chinese journalism on that. Um, I have not read it yet, but I heard that the Saishin story on HNA, which I really need to read, is superb. It's a phenomenal story. Yeah, yeah, we Western reporters 
we are beneficiaries of the closed Chinese system. If the Chinese system were open, we would be nothing. We would be nobodies because it's the Chinese reporter's country. It's their own country. They understand it a hundred times better than we do. And they can just run circles around us, but they don't and they can't because of the system. And that leaves it open for schmucks like me. Um, and so I do it and it's, and it, and it's, a, it's crazy what hasn't been reported. And so I'm, you know, still looking at stuff. And, uh, anyway, that's a very long winded answer. So according to a friend who worked for Tsai Yitzin, apparently they had the HNA story ready for quite some time, but it was yeah. banned from, from being published. And after Chen Feng and Tan Xiangdong, you know, were, uh, basically taken by, by, uh, the Ministry of Public Security. Suddenly, they got the green light to write on those people. And then yeah. the story published basically the day after uh, Chen Feng and Tan Xiangdong got, got detained by Chinese authorities. And the story was amazing. It has lots of texture, lots of details. They talked with um, people who had connections to HNA, pre, uh, you know, previous employees. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if those people were are much more open to talk to a Chinese media outlet and get the details oh, yeah. to them rather than a, a foreign outlet. So that's part one. Part two, I also wanted to, you know, express how the book actually talk about how impactful the New York, New York Times exposés are. And, you know, I think the book talk about basically Wen Jiabao himself was not fully aware of the extent of his family members' his dealings until New York Times broke the story um, on his family's you know, family members in the empire. And apparently the New York Times article led to a really dramatic response from Wen Jiabao. According to the book, Wen said to his colleagues and, you know, basically his people who are, who are close to Wen Jiabao that I wanted to file for divorce and relinquish all worldly concern and convert to Buddhism. That was basically Wen Jiabao's reaction. And apparently Wen only gave up that plan because central party leadership intervened and convinced him not to to convert from communism to Buddhism because that would be harmful for the party's image. But yeah, that's how, how much impact your your, your stories and um, Mr. David Borbose's story had on uh, central Chinese leadership. Given that you're, there is this sort of weird relationship where Beijing reporting only trusts you guys in an odd way, um, you know, what does that feel like? It's very crazy reporting on this. And it's it's to me, it's always shocking that, you know, no one has done it already. You know, as a reporter, you always expect a whole bunch of other reporters to be circling around it. And so um, and it's just it's really a testimony to the fact that the Chinese system is so closed. There are so few reporters in the world that have the freedom to write about this. Um, And this is a little bit off topic, but. I have been over the many years very disappointed in the crop of Hong Kong reporters and Taiwan reporters, but they may have come from the mainland and lived overseas. And instead of writing real investigative, real deep pieces, oftentimes they just write rumor-based kind of stuff. And uh, that's not universally true. There have been some very well-researched books and everything, um, but it, it seems to me like and again, I'm really being extemporaneous here, but uh, that the New York Times reporters, me and Dave, mostly, uh, you know, that have been working on this, um, have much, much more in common with the Taishin reporters 
and the, the domestic Chinese reporters than just about anybody else in the world. I think we think the same ways. We're looking at the same companies. We're looking at the same documents and we want to talk to the same people. And I think Lizzie's absolutely right that a Chinese reporter, it's much easier for them to talk to Chinese people who are the keys to the story. And, and that's what you see in this, the HNA story. Um, you know, you would get some amazing texture that, you know, Perhaps I would never have been able to get when I was at Bloomberg with the Xi Jinping story that if, if, if it were Chinese reporters doing it. It's interesting to me, another one of these themes in this book of mirroring and kind of each side thinking that the system runs in their way, or, or, or I guess it's only really one side, or like folks in China thinking that the Western world runs in their way. There's this um, great anecdote of uh Desmond's wife, who came to New York for in vitro fertilization therapy and thought that she had to, like, give the doctor, you know, watches and like bought the doctor's kid who was an artist, you know, some fancy painting where the doctor was going to treat her as well as any other patient, regardless of like how many like the equivalent of like a Western Hongbao he got. Um, you know, Mike, again, like you, uh, your editor getting called to like shut you up is also just not something that's going to happen. Presidents call up, uh, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times. And like often you guys tell them to to, to shove it. And coming back to, to Wan Shishan and, and thinking that there's a sort of global conspiracy, right? If you see that in your daily life living in Chinese bureaucracy, it makes sense to, you know, pattern matched that this is the way the rest of the world works. Thoughts on this? Is there is this human nature? Is, is there anything particular about China that makes it hard to sort of see outside of the system? Um, I mean, for somebody like um, Whitney Duan, who is she she really I, I don't believe she ever studied abroad. She's really a product of the system in China who worked really hard to get where she was. Um, she's a lot like her, you know, her sugar mommy, I guess, you know, uh, John Bailey, you know, uh, they are part of the system. And so, of course, when they go over to New York, she's going to be showering the doctor and his family with gifts. And And, and of course, you see the same, you know ideas that, you know, and you see these Western businessmen who going going into China and projecting the Western system onto China and expecting it to work the way they expect it to work. And they just fail time and time and time again. And so that just seems um, very natural, very relatable. Um, and it was a great anecdote in the book. I would just add one more anecdote from the book, which is um, when the New York Times, well, when Mr. David Barbosa kind of informed Whitney Duan that they were going to write a story on Wen Jiabao's family treasure, including Whitney Duan herself. So Whitney Duan's first instinct was to call up David Barbosa's Taiwanese wife and basically talk about, oh, we are all Chinese. You understand what this means to me and my family kind of a speech. I think for you know, and you know, in the book, Desmond Shun was surprised and kind of appalled by by his wife's behavior and approach to that. But I think for someone like me who grew up in the Chinese system, I can totally relate to her instinct of resorting to the common to the to the common culture, to the common heritage, and backing the weaker party of the family structure, which is usually perceived to be the wife, and resort to things like your kids, uh, our family, our connection, that kind of stuff, instead of actually addressing the problem, which is, you know, where, where did you get the money? Where did Zhang Bili got her money? So I thought that was, you know, kind of painful to read, but also very relatable. And the same thing applies, you know, when Chinese people are trying to talk to a Western reporter 
and they and they're just thinking, well, how how do I how do I do this to a Western reporter? So an example I had is when I was at Bloomberg and we were about to publish the Xi Jinping's family wealth story. I was at the Pangu Hotel um, near the Olympic Green, and I was meeting with a representative of like a PR person uh, who represented um, one of the the Xi Jinping relatives, and she was telling me, and she was clearly getting this from the center of the family that, um, you know, you shouldn't run this story because Xi Jinping is going to be a reformer. And if you run this story, it's going to hurt him. And do you, you know this guy named Liu Xiaobo? Yeah, you know Liu Xiaobo, right? Well, if Xi Jinping becomes the leader, he'll free Liu Xiaobo. The implication being very clear is if we run the story, Liu Xiaobo will never be free. And of course, that was true. He never was, but trying to pull on a Western reporter's heartstrings like that, it was very crude. And you can see that, you know, they were kind of trying to view the West from their angle, but in an exaggerated kind of funhouse mirror kind of way. Yeah. And also, you know, it also happened to Liu He, right? I can't remember which piece it was, but I believe it was Ling Ling Wei's piece on, um, on, 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 on Xi Jinping, the most recent piece. She talked about how when Liu He met with a group of Wall Street executives in, in New York, I think right before the signing of the phase one trade deal, Liu He was talking about how concentration was power, uh, concentration of power by Xi Jinping actually paved the way for more opening and reforming. I detect some kind of similarity between Liu He's words and also, um, you know, the, the person who talked with Mike back in Beijing, kind of using that reform and opening as sort of a tactic to actually convey their message and try to do the persuasion in their way. Yeah, I'm having Peter Martin on the show to talk about his new book um, in the next few weeks. And this goes back way deeper, right? It's interesting that, that kind of like there's a level of skill is is maybe indirectly proportional to like how autocratic the system is at any given moment where, you know, you have more persuasive, a more persuasive way to interact with the outside world when you have less centralization of power. Someone write that PhD thesis uh, and prove me wrong. I don't know. Final thought. Um, I remember uh, when I moved to Washington right after college, someone said, Jordan, you're not going to make any real friends here. This city is not the place for that. Like all your relationships are going to be transactional. Um, and thinking about that sort of like wise advice I got from someone who was, you know, 20 years older than me back in Washington. And now and now reading this book, it's it's interesting to reflect on like what parts of this system are around in the like Washington nexus of money and power and which aren't. I'm curious if, if either of you guys want to want to take that one on. There's always, you know, similarities. Um, and maybe during the last four years under our previous president, those similarities became more obvious. Um, certainly I, as a reporter, could, as an American reporter, could hold myself a little bit higher in moral standing, I think, before 2017. And I think all of us are, are much more humble now because we can see how quickly the U.S. system can devolve into rent-seeking and corruption. But the difference always has been the fact that America is an open society with a free press and all this stuff got written about. And unfortunately in China, you know, we only touch the surface and there's so much more to be done. And, you know, so you just get back to the theme of these amazing Chinese reporters uh, who are just shackled. Um, and and so that is as similar as Washington and, and Beijing said, you know, goes and, you know, the old cliche in Washington, if you, if you need a friend, get a dog. Right. It was very transactional for Desmond Shum 
in Beijing, and it's very transactional for so many people in Washington. But those are somewhat superficial compared to the real difference with a free press, with the rule of law. Um, you know, I think I think there are there are similarities, but there's also huge differences. Yeah, I, I think you hinted at this at the end, Mike. You know, it's not just the free press; it's rule of law too, right? The American justice system has a lot of problems with it, but arbitrarily throwing billionaires into jail is not one of them. And, you know, this comes back to uh, one of the things that you pointed out, I think, on Twitter, Mike, is that like the anti-corruption push that she was allowed to do. This book very you know, explicitly characterizes it as as much a political push as a, you know, we need to clean up governance. Yeah. No. And Lizzie wrote a very well about this, too, in her article, I thought. Well, well, thank you. I guess the one person I will point to is Chen Xi, who's believed to be a Xi Jinping ally. And the book had a, you know, I think a, a fantastic paragraph on uh, Whitney Duan's interaction with Chen Xi. So basically, Whitney Duan was a little worried how this anti-corruption campaign is going to end up. And Whitney Duan asked Chen Xi. And Chen Xi is, oh, don't worry too much. You know, he's going to wind it down uh, before the before the, the first half of his term ends. And why is that? Because if you sort of keep going, people would realize that it's not just a few bad apples in the system. The entire system itself is corrupt. So that's Chen Xi's interpretation of what was going on. It, was Chen Xi correct? I actually don't know. But I, at least that interaction told us that even within the system, for someone very close to Xi Jinping and trusted by Xi Jinping, Chen Xi was also aware that anti-corruption campaign was not about picking up the bad apples in the system and restore some, some sort of glory and purity to the Communist Party system. It was practical from the very beginning. And, you know, starting this was political and, and sort of strategic and ending it is also political and, and strategic. It was a very practical move by Xi Jinping. The kind of question that I'm asking myself nowadays is, is there going to be another round of anti-corruption campaign? I do think we see some signs of it, especially in the in the banking and financial sector of of China. I think it was you know just this weekend when Zhao Leji announced a new disciplinary inspection on twenty five financial sectors of China, including some policy banks and uh, state owned insurers and loan um, sort of loan givers of China. Whether that will you know sort of initiate another round of anti-corruption campaigns targeting at some of Xi's own bureaucrats, I think will be an intriguing thing to watch for the next few months or, uh, or so. I believe it's a three to four month uh, inspection. Yeah. And and I would just say that, um, you know, there's no doubt that um, Xi Jinping, when he came to power in late 2012, and he said it at the time, I mean, he really was concerned about rampant corruption, I think, in China. I think that's safe to say. and. You know, we all saw it. It was a little bit out of control, I guess, during Hu Jintao's, especially his second term. There was so much more money and there was so much that a connected person could do. And certainly Desmond Shaman and his wife, Whitney Duan, were right at the center of it. You know, there were so many IPOs. China was growing like gangbusters. There were just money sloshing around everywhere. Um, and so the opportunities were rife, but it was really causing a lot of resentment uh, in China. And the wealth gap, you know, was just astronomical at that time. And so there was a genuineness to it in that sense by Xi Jinping. But then when you saw the people who were at the top who were taken down, uh, they followed a pattern of people of being that were maybe not on Xi Jinping's side if they're in whatever factions there were. And I thought the book was very helpful in that 
you know, in discussing Sun Jung Tai, who is clearly somebody with a future, somebody who could be the next general secretary starting at the party Congress next year, if there were going to do a turnover, you know, he and Hu Chunhua were going to be maybe the number one and number two, uh, no longer. You know, there are no successors now that I know of. And I think the book helped push the needle a little bit for me towards more of a, you know, a political takedown than a real anti-corruption drive. Of course, it is still both. And to have Wang Qishan be in charge of it for so many years also was very interesting, given his background. But he's also an extremely competent, um, as far as we know, a very competent uh, manager and, and leader. Um, but anyway, very, yeah, I thought the book was very good in that sense in describing some of those backstories. I think it's also important to recognize that many of the problems China faced during its gilded age actually had parallels in the West, right? So, you know, the current slogan is common prosperity, but it's also, you know, important to, to realize that China is as unequal as some of the most unequal capitalist countries in the world. If I have my numbers correct, I believe the top 20% of Chinese households actually take home more than 45% of the of the country's disposable income. And if we zoom into zoom on to, to wealth, it's even more stark. I believe the top 1% of China has over 30% of household wealth, wealth um, in China. So that's a real problem. It's a little bit unfair to, you know, to say, oh, it's all about China. Corruption was about China. And this common prosperity initiative was Xi Jinping's way to root out private enterprise. I think it's also you know, helpful to to keep in mind that we do have that kind of parallel uh, of China and the West. They're in different stages of development. But in the West, there was also a time of rampant corruption. But apparently, um, I don't know enough about U.S. history to say this determinously, but I don't think, you know, any U.S. presidents use anti-corruption campaign to root out all, uh, root out all his or her, his political enemies. I don't think that happened in the United States. Oh, I... More like mayors of New York. Mayors of New York do. That's for sure. Yeah. Gotcha. No no one's clean on this one. You could also argue that like Wilson and the whole progressive movement of professionalizing the civil service was a way to kind of get out, maybe not like political enemies, but like folks who were not on board with his ideologically of have vision. So anyways, China's Gilded Age, right? Uh, By uh, Yuan Ang, who came on the show to talk about her book. It's a particularly apt comparison when thinking about the story of, of Desmond, how this sort of lines up to, you know, 1880s to 1920 America. Well, if you would like to peer pressure Mike to start his Coursera, you can find him on uh, Twitter as well as uh, as well as Lizzie. Their, their links will be in the show notes. Lizzie and Mike, thank you so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you so much, Jordan, for hosting the show. It's been, ta- it's been great fun talking to both of you. It's been great, Jordan. Yeah, thank you. 二零一五要看深改小组
人民的期待变成我们的行动。生点小祖两岁了，这两年干了不少事儿，嫁给税改国企改改改改改，简政放权释放活力，供给改革升级经济。开工没有回头箭。生点小祖两岁了，这两年干了不少事儿，苍蝇、老虎、大狐狸，抓抓抓抓，从严治党，自身要硬，司法改革一定要赢，有虎必逞，有贪必诉。生点小祖两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿啊，治水、治气、治土地，治治治治啊，绿水青山就是金山，一带一路秉承的是共商共建、共享原则，推动亚欧进步，叫做一带。一路自贸开放，法律金融互相帮助，啊，创建亚投银行基础建设加速，这 SDR 终于认可了人民币的加入。面对雾霾，他们恨之入骨，生态保护下定决心要张弓跋弩，该停产的停产，该打住的打住，绿水青山才能迈向新的征途。生改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿，叫改医改户籍改改改改改，便民惠民生活不累，精准扶贫不能掉队，把人民的希望变成生活的现实。生改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿，嫁改税改国企改改改改改，简政放权释放活力，供给改革升级经济，改革关头勇者胜。生改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿，苍蝇、老虎、大狐狸，抓抓抓抓，从严治党，自身要硬，司法改革一定要赢，高举反腐的利剑。生改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿啊，治水、治气、治土地，治治治治啊，绿水青山就是金山，一带一路秉承的是，不是封闭的，而是开放包容的。